Hi, uh, good evening. I'm Marshall Price. I'm the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art here at the National Academy. Um, and I'd like to welcome you to uh, the February edition of the review panel. Um, before we get started, I would just like to mention a few upcoming public programs that we have here at the Academy. Um, on March 14th, we will have uh, Artists in Dialogue with uh, Joan Jonas and Kate Gilmore, uh, both artists who are in the annual uh, currently. Um, they will be in conversation with me, and that's at 6.30. And on March 28th, we have on and on and on Arlene Sheckett and Faye Hirsch, one of our panelists this evening, um, in conversation. Arlene is currently in the exhibition, and you may have seen Faye's piece on Arlene in Art in America uh, two months ago. So we hope that you will come, with, come for both of those. And at the end of March, uh, we also have uh, another installment of the review panel on March 30th with um, Bill Berkson, Will Heinrich, and Karen Wilkin, along with David Cohen, our moderator. So I hope that you will all come to those. Um, the Art Talks are uh, supported by Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts, so we are very grateful to them for their continuing support for our programming. With that being said, I'd like to introduce uh, tonight's moderator, David Cohen. Um, David is uh, publisher and editor of artcritical.com, and David will be giving a lecture, uh, Artists Out of Time, Andre Deran, at the New York Studio School this coming Wednesday. So with that, I will hand it over to David. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you to the National Academy for being such a uh, an incredible host and founder uh, with me of, of this uh, series. Who's here for the first time at a review panel? Wonderful. Thank you very lovely to see you, <laughs> including, uh, including Franklin here. So for Franklin's sake and for your uh, amusement, let me uh, very quickly tell you uh, what it is that we do, though it may have been quite clear from the postcard. The review panel. We have four exhibitions that... Uh, hopefully the panel and, uh, uh, well, definitely the panel, and uh, <laughs> many of our uh, audience will have gone to see. Uh, we will do a little PowerPoint presentation as a visual uh, refresher, reminder of what we've looked at of the first couple of shows. Uh, the, my co-panelists will discuss it with the, those two shows with me. The audience can then let off steam and uh, share their insights into those two shows and then it's back to the PowerPoint and a repetition of that exercise. And then we all go off into the dreary, cold night. <laughs> and then we come back again, as Marshall said, at the end of the month, uh, end of March, to repeat the whole exercise again. And I can just let you know that uh, it's uh, simplicity itself for seeing the shows next time. Simplicity in that they all, the show takes place in one venue. Uh, but not necessarily a simple show to look at. It's the Whitney Biennial. So the Whitney Biennial is the topic of the review panel on March 30th. So um, let me thank Graham White, who records and edits our review panel, which you can then hear podcast at artcritical.com. And Graham pointed out to me as he was editing the 
last installment, just as we we're putting it up, that we had missed a milestone anniversary. The last installment, the January edition of the review panel, was number 50 in the series. So we are into the second half of our first century. So um, with that, uh, I can now proceed with some confidence great confidence, in fact, to introduce this evening's panelists. Great confidence because to my right, Faye Hirsch is a regular, here for the third time, perhaps? Third time. Third time, lucky. Um, <laughs> Faye Hirsch, uh, who's, who's already, you've heard of, about in relation to her dialogue coming up with Arlene Sheket, is a senior editor at Art in America magazine. Uh, credentials that need no amplification as indeed would be uh, the distinction of being a contributor to artcritical.com, which is a uh, qualifier uh, uh, uniting our other two panelists, Christina Key and Franklin Einsprach. Uh, Franklin is uh, also a keen blogger. Uh, his uh, site is artblog.net. As an artist, you can see his work at einsprach.com. And as a uh, comic writer, you can see him on themoonfellonme.com. <laughs> and Christina, uh, in addition to her uh, work at Art Critical, is a painter, and she has uh, contributed a scholarly essay to Tabula Quarterly, forthcoming, and she's the uh, catalogue essayist, much in demand. Uh, recent publications include an, an essay for Wolf Kahn at Amaringa Yoe, and um, uh, a more recent essay on Jack Bush for Friedman Gallery. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Fantastic. Let's have a look at the PowerPoints, please, Marshall, for the first couple of shows. Joyce Pensato. Yes, David. Great gusto there. We, we saw from the bar charts that the uh, black and white is faithfully reproduced there. But, of course, the uh, distinguished feature of, of this show, a, a distinguished feature of this show, um, we are told, is the readmission of color for the first time in this body of work for somebody who's uh, almost trademarked black and white with all its graphic punch. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the other... Um, distinguishing feature of this uh, show, among her uh, many others, is um, her foray into installation art in the form of bringing uh, not just some uh, uh, props, uh, but indeed uh, some of the very physical infrastructure of her, the studio from which, which she has occupied for many years and which, from which she's been no doubt, evicted rather recently. She was evicted, yes. um, This has found its way, as we saw in those slides, into the, into the show. So color and trash, those are the big uh, innovations. Uh, which do we welcome most? <laughs> which do we welcome most? Wow, I wasn't expecting that question. Um, I don't know whether... I mean, the color's an odd, an odd thing. I have many things to say about this show. What should I... <laughs> well, Where do I begin? Start with um, my question if you like. Okay, but, uh, well, I mean, the color, the color thing is actually rather interesting. It was in that there was one image, the one painting that has color in it, which is called Batman 2012. 
the Batman imagery is something that she's been doing for many years. He keeps coming back to at various points. Um, but he's had a long sabbatical. He's had a bit of a sabbatical, and when he's co- and he's come back in force in this exhibition. But the color one is interesting to me because color I want to put in big quote marks mm-hmm. because it's so um, it's it's the white Batman. You see the white mask and you see the color behind it. But the color is it's not cheery uh, gay color. It's it's mm-hmm. actually has almost a grisaille quality to it. So right. to me, it was actually rather funny. And she said that it was. It has to do with the fact that she would make these pastels where she would crush crush the pastels uh, when she would make them. But it is the first, as she's told me, the first color painting she's done. But I, again, I think color is a bit of an exaggeration. Um, it's a kind of a, it's a very subdued situation. Mm-hmm. And as for the trash, the, um, the, this was, uh, these were literally piles of things taken from her studio. Sometimes literally the wall cut off and I have mixed feelings about it. I, um, I really love the idea of, you know, for those people who don't go to artist studios, to get a sense of the artist studio. But there was something, um, and, I, and I like being able to see the, it, it's funny trash, so that's always good. But it's also, you get a sense of the manic energy of the woman, which you're going to see anyway in the paintings, but perhaps it helps you sort of understand the totality of her creative process. So I like that, but the one problem I have, and then I'll shut up, is that there seemed to me to be something slightly opportunistic about it on the part of the dealer. I feel like, on the one hand, I love the fact that this artist who has been neglected for so long is being so deeply supported by her uh, by her dealer that mm-hmm. he's willing to, to do this thing for her. Um, and, uh, and, and include the, tra- the, um, the, the detritus of the studio. Um, on the other hand, there was something sort of slightly creepy to me about seeing sections of her studio with a price tag on it. That yes. seemed... I hear that quite a big chunk was going to a Swedish or Swiss collector. Well, good. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad it's going to go together. But, and I'm sure it was... You know, and, I, and I'm glad she's getting the money. Of yes. course. I mean, more power to her. But there was something... Pay the first month's rent of the new exorbitant uh, exactly. space you'll take in Bushwick. So that, okay. that, that's the only thing that's sort of slightly... There's something to me, maybe I'm a little bit romantic, but there's something kind of pure to me about an artist's studio. Yes. And I love, I love the this, this secret place that it is um, until maybe, maybe there certainly are studios that have been kept intact. Yeah, we, there, are, there are museum shows, aren't there, uh, Christina, which... Um, uh, you know the the, the, the big uh, Jackson Pollock at the at MoMA some years ago. Also the Mondrian show at uh, MoMA. Um, uh, if you go to the Mirandi Museum, Bologna, you've got a reconstruction of his studio. You almost feel like there might be a room next door. The reconstruction of the brothel he went to once a week. I mean, it's a it's a little bit Disney, isn't it, to bring the studio into the? I mean, the studio should be there in the in the work, right? Uh, I agree completely uh, that it seems like it should be problematic. I was very, very worried about this show before I actually went. I've had hesitations about Joyce Pensado's work in the past, um, and I, I like the feeling of it, but I've, it, it makes me worried that it's not terribly sure of itself. And I've, I've had hesitations, and also this idea of bringing in the studio exactly as you say. I thought, this is a terrible idea. It's fetishistic. All the problems that one could have. And I have to say, seeing the show was the greatest surprise I had preparing for this um, panel. I thought it was a magnificent show, and I couldn't believe that it actually worked 
to have the studio pieces inside the space. Um, I think what came across through the, you know, the splatters of white and black enamel on these poor little Elmo dolls and everything is that um, it's uh, the black and white paint suddenly seems such a symbol of her strength over the years. And I also felt suddenly the paintings were, were strong. It's though the years of struggling with this imagery had suddenly paid off. And there was this incredible strength in both the objects and the paintings. So um, I agree that it's all problematic, and yet it works beautifully. And that was, was a great thing for me to see. I have to say, I mean, frankly, I, I mean, the, while the uh, installation was... Uh, to me, uh, amusing and uh, a mild irritation. Uh, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't strong enough to detract from the strength of the paintings, which were decisive for me. Did you? Do you share that? I kept thinking back to a visit that I had to the studio of Larry Poons, and there is that also the encrusted layer of paint that's accumulated over the years of slinging paint at the wall, and uh, Poons' studio actually makes. Uh, Ms. Pensado's studio looked tidy. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to imagine, you know, what if, what if Larry Poons had taken chunks of stuff that had been pulled off the floor and sort of scattered it about the, uh, about the room up next to the, the color fill paintings that he'd been working on? I don't think that would be uh, functional or very well received. I, um, I almost thought that there's, there was a bit of a... Of a you might even call it a critical injustice going on that had had either component of of uh, Pensado's work, the cartooning element or the paint slinging element, been practiced in and of its own genre, that uh, that she would not have earned the kind of serious regard from the people she would have she seems to have earned it from, and. Because there are all, there are very fine cartoonists out there. There are very fine paint slingers just working in a pure formal mode out there. Uh, so I, uh, but I, I will say that the uh, the note that was made about the color, I was surprised at how effective that was working. She um, she has drawings that have been very heavily erased, and it looks like. Pastels have been introduced into them. Color pastels have been introduced in them, and then have been erased off this very thick paper. So mm -hmm. there's a sort of uh, fuzzy surface of highly degraded, thick art paper, and uh, and the colors in those were really very nice. It, it was sort of the. I'm always very suspicious when I see painters who work in black and white. Uh, Usually, I'm, I start thinking about okay, how would color work in this? If can they use color? Are they using black and white because they have no choice? Uh, when she went to introduce color into that uh, most recent Batman piece, that color very much resembled the abraded effect that she got on paper, and I was very impressed with that. Mm. I take issue with the idea, though, Franklin, of saying, "Oh, she's in two genres: splattering paint and." Uh, cartooning, and there are fine cartoonists out there. These aren't her cartoons. They're found images that she's... They are portraits of a cartoon of a conceptual character, Batman or Goofy or Doofy or... Uh, 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 Batman or... Um, olive oil. Olive oil, exactly. So, uh, to me, they, they are so, so clearly a cipher or a vehicle uh, rather than saying, oh, she's cartooning. She's not cartooning. She's not mm -hmm. going to compete with... Uh, your contribution to, to the moon uh, fell on us dot com. So don't worry. But let's—it's it, missing the point, isn't it, uh, 
Faye of Pensato. Well, say. well, I think that you know, I I've always thought she's a brilliant painter, actually, and and mm -hmm. to me, there's no difference between finding a. I mean, there's obviously a difference, mm -hmm. but there's there's it's it's found imagery like so much other found imagery, and I just want to say that in this show, <clears throat> there are so many good paintings, and particularly on one wall in the back, there was a group of four very large paintings. Um, that I thought of as sort of the tetrarchs of the show. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was um, a, a couple of clowns and Homer. There were there, there was and there was one big clown mask that was done in silver paint, where the eyes are kind of one eye is kind of bleary and the other one is clear. And it was the spookiest thing. I mean, you really felt like there was somebody back there looking out at you. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me, and I've asked her about this. You know the the sheer, the darkness of these paintings, you know, the kind of scary quality of them. And I do find them to be, to be very, very dark in spirit um, and kind of, and kind of threatening at times. Um, she, she doesn't see them that way. She sees it as purely a formal kind of exercise. But I, I feel like there's, um, that there is a, a, yeah, I feel like there's a certain darkness in the work that is, is brilliantly, um, and she's done this for, for many, many years. And that the, and one more thing about the black and white that I want to say is that I've always felt that black and white and grisaille are interesting from the standpoint of color, that you can use black and white coloristically. And that, in fact, the way Pensado uses black and white is so incredibly varied. It create, she creates so many different effects with that black and white in terms of brightness and darkness and mood that, that to me, it, it operates very much like color, even though it's not color. So to me, it's, it's, a, it's a coloristic use of black and white. Um, like the tonality of great etchings. Exactly, exactly. Right, yes, yes. No, uh, no. No, no. <laughs> no, I, actually, I, I tend to think that the, the reason black and white works well, well for her is because she has amazing graphic abilities that this there's there's this particular kind of effect you get out of a broad black line that's unlike anything else that that one could make but i i didn't find them uh nuanced in the way that i mean i'm, I'm thinking of uh as an example of uh using black and white coloristically the whole tradition of chinese painting uh, she's uh she throws paint really well, and she knows she throws paint really well, and I think that's what comes through as a, as a success well, in her work. That there too. is, she, she doesn't just throw. Yeah, it. and it, there is there is some variation. Yeah. I don't I don't mean yeah. to. She's a pure flinger. Sorry. <laughs> yes, but I mean, uh, you know, de Kooning's black and white. We know he's a consummate colorist. Klein. So, Klein, of course. <laughs> um, but uh, um, I would say also that. Uh, I won't uh, give Klein that either, as a matter of fact. So okay. I mean, this is just my thing. Oh, All wow. right. Well, <laughs> then, then, then those of us who dig Pensato will take consolation from the fact that you don't get dig uh, Klein either. But um, uh, uh, I would say, Faye, that uh, her uh, use of sinister figures is as purely a formal exercise as de Kooning's use of voluptuous women is a... Uh, merely a, a formal exercise. Uh, Christina, tell us how you uh, engaged with the content, the subject. Well, 
I agree completely that it's, I find her work incredibly dark, and I know that she's made short films, and the way she approaches her own work is often as a kind of comedic, as having a comedic element. I don't feel the comedic element in the work at all, I have to say. Um, I really see, to me, the entry into the work is as a power struggle. And, uh, and it's maybe simplistic to say, but I, I do believe the black and white plays into it a little bit. If one's doing... Um, comic imagery and especially superheroes, I think, quite relevantly. Um, people you're really dealing with um, plays of good and evil quite quite mm -hmm. directly. And, um, you know, the things that are scary and the things that are not scary, the things that are okay, the things that are not okay, I think are constantly dealt with in her work. And I think it's a... Mm -hmm. I, I think the reason I like the studio elements being brought into the, into the space, again, much to my surprise, was that I do feel... Um, her work is very much a power play between the world and her and she's bringing the world into her studio she's transforming it, she's destroying it in many many cases and putting it back out there and I think the I think the black and white, the harshness of that is um, quite incredible. Um, mm. And so that's how I would see an entry I wonder into if work. You, would, you would, I mean, when you said that it's not mm. comedic to you, yeah. I mean, maybe that's not the right word. No, I, I think that no. mordancy is probably a little more Correct. what it is. Yes. You know, I mean, yeah. there, it's not like there isn't humor in it, but it's a very, very dark yeah. Well, a figure humor. that comes straight to my mind, of course, with Topical, with his recent suicide, would be Mike Kelly. And so mm -hmm. the, the word yeah. that unites dark and humor is the word grotesque and I think mm -hmm. I think there's a very strong element of the macabre the grotesque mm -hmm. uh, and has that same punk angle as well yeah. yes it yeah. has a sort of it's punk and sore yeah. yes yes and fear I mean it's you know the, a bit of the scary clown situation fear and loathing in lower Manhattan yes <laughs> yes can I say one more thing about the, de Please. the, the detritus? Yes. Um, one of the things that I found very strange is that there are a lot of images that she picks up of headshots of anonymous black people mm -hmm. who are doing these modeling things. Mm -hmm. And also there's a lot of blackface in that mm -hmm. in that. Yes. And I asked her if there was any if there was any kind of racial subtext and, mm -hmm. and, and, and she said no, it's purely formal. That's what she kept saying to me, you know, it's sort of um, you know, I, I find it you know, it's this is the kind of thing where you wanna kind of get a critic in there and deconstruct things a yes. little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think I think that it's a good serious study of Pensado would be would be a really interesting thing to undertake. And it's striking to me also that uh, Lisa Yuskovich is is this belligerent, insistent formalist in mm -hmm. theory as well. Mm -hmm. That people talk to her about her imagery, it's just form. She, she won't have anything to do with any kind of feminist deconstruction of them. It's just form. Um, so. Um, Maybe for, I mean, they're, they're women of very different generations and cultures. Not in, so different. Uh, not very, I mean, it's not that one yeah. is 100 and the other is three. But I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they, they came out of, you know, yes. one of them comes out of the 70s and the other yeah. came out yeah. of the late 80s. So that's generally that's enough of a shift from my point of view of my scale. And, um, but, and yet they're sort of united in getting behind or hiding behind, if one wants to analyze it that a way, mask. Uh, a, a mask of, I'm a painter, I'm doing something formal. Of course, it's not just hiding behind a mask, it's also uh, demanding that the work be taken seriously. Well, Pensado is literally a mask. I mean, those are yes. all masks, every one of them. Right. Oh, she's, oh, she's using never, masks. There's never a whole figure, it's always a mask. Uh -huh. And she's literally using masks, she's Batman masks. Rather than a 
clown frames masks of strip, and, comic strip. Mm, yeah, just so that uh, I didn't realize yeah, that about yeah, her, yeah. her practice. That would help explain the visceral yeah. and uh, volumetric nature of the um, the heads, which is surprising for a comic strip. So I always thought that was her mm. um, bringing, a sort of an empathetic, empathetically bringing a volume to them. But if she's literally um, observing masks, that would and be... And speaking a, of them as masks, yeah, yes. Right. Mm. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, um, let's move to the... Uh, to a very different kind of painting, perhaps, <laughs> except, of course, that monochrome uh, unites it with the grisaille and black and white of the first show. Uh, Mary Corse, um, visiting f- from California, her first show with uh, uh, Lehman Mopin, I believe. Um, Franklin, I've already attempted one horrible and inexcusable pun on this serious <laughs> ladies' work. I think it would be unforgivable to try another. And yet, oh, to be... Oh, stop yourself. <laughs> to be called coarse and make work that's so refined does beg some observation. <laughs> you want me to field that? All right, let's... Uh, let's, uh, let's instead talk about how... Uh, it's, I didn't... I guess I didn't realize that that uh, Pensado was defying the content so hard in terms of insisting that she was a formalist, because Mary Corse rather does the opposite. I think uh, Mary Corse is making quite an effort to say that she is not interested in California light and space painting. Uh, th- this may just be an overall strategy to try to not be pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, maybe not for its own sake, but I think it's, it's easy to fall into a category and then uh, folks who are not looking hard enough will say, mm-hmm. oh, she's one of those folks, and just sort of stop looking at that point. And, of course, something um, like Mary Corse's work, that if you stop looking, that is fatal, because they are all about that experience of looking. I, uh, I found these paintings to be really quite wonderful, and I was concerned about the... Uh, if, for those of you who didn't get to see this show, she's working with a surface that has been covered with microspheres, little glass microspheres, and that is used in signage for the most part. If you, if you ever catch a stop sign on a country road in the dark and it reflects back in this very intense way, it's because they've covered it in this, in this uh, coating of glass. And so she's using that on her surfaces, so the paintings change radically as you move around them. And my concern about that was that it was going to be gimmicky, and it was not, it was sublime. It was just a beautiful effect. And again, with, I was thinking that you know, we have this term monochrome for people who use black and white. What do we call the people who are just using white? There's nothing down for mono to <laughs> verbally to go from there. And, and she's just using this very narrow range of, of value beautifully, uh, working with this effect of the, the reflected light very beautifully. Seeing them on moss in the space was, was quite striking. Mm. And and uh, they were not coarse at all. <laughs> Only quite refined. Quite refined, yes. Uh, very refined. Uh, Christina, um, you mustn't stop looking, Franklin says. Uh, I find also, you, uh, as he also observed, mm-hmm. uh, you, you pretty, got, pretty much got to find your spot because of this weird sensation um, of basically 
having an invisible canvas until you get to the right position, mm. in which case you suddenly get some approximation of maybe some of the sort of, I don't know what the terms of reference would be in art world terms, um, a, a sort of uh, very postmodern kind of Clifford Still or, or, or mm. Rothko effect. Um, was that enough for you to keep you riveted to the spot? Uh, no, I feel um, feel sort of, I knew this might be a bit of a problem, but I, I didn't care for the works at all, I have to say. Um, I had, uh, I walked into the space and I thought, these are stunning, they're wonderful, do, what do I think? And then within a, a very short period of time, I'd, I'd found that I, I'd lost that initial interest and that the sensation was one of hollowness. Um, that they are, they are stunning. To, I mean, definitely they should be seen. They're stunning works in terms of the way the surface is manipulated, the way they are... I felt the way they're supposed to operate in the space, which is to create this transcendent beam of light, like what one might see at the end of the tunnel or before mm -hmm. passing. Where, you know, it has all those implications. Um, I fe it felt a bit manipulated, like I was supposed to be having this wondrous experience of whiteness, which in itself is a little problematic, I have to say. The sheer whiteness of the, the, the room um, raised some issues for me. And I, I think they're beautifully done. And I think if people enjoy them, that's, then they're right in the sense that it is about the experience. But as the fact that they reference paintings a certain way, that they, they seem to suggest a certain mode of viewing. And then I feel they don't really quite measure up to this very, very high standard they've set for themselves, both in terms of you know, their formal arrangement and, and its subject matter. I don't think they quite, they quite reach the mark. Yes. Um, Faye, a couple of us are having a trouble with what we might almost call a gimmick uh, with these works, uh, although Christina has very eloquently resisted uh, the G word. Um, uh, are you with uh, Franklin on this, or are you a skeptic? Yeah, I'm with, I'm with Franklin on this. Um, I... I um I was completely fascinated by them and 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 I found myself spending a lot of time in that gallery much to my surprise uh, quite a lot of time and I really looked at them closely because I wanted to tr I was trying to figure out how they worked exactly um the way she the directional with which she puts the her paint on and how she achieves those stripes is is really quite mysterious mm -hmm. and I also you know I found myself moving up close moving far away and I loved and to me um, the, I mean, they're light in space. I mean, it's, it's, there's something is, you know, there is something, I guess you could say inherently gimmicky about it, but it's meant to be this, this kind of full, full body experience. And I guess what's most fascinating to me about them is that they're a species of work that, um, insists on the body, the bodily nature of visuality. Um, that your body is going to be entirely affected by what it is that you're seeing, that there is, that you're forced to take account of the physicality of sight. And I, I think that that is, uh, to me, that's something I, I really love, and I feel like she did it really well. Um, I wasn't crazy about the lighting in the gallery. I thought that was kind of sad um, for those paintings. I, I wished that there had been more natural light and that, uh, yeah, because I, because I, it would have been fun to see them really mm. really flicker and really they they say that they can even give off rainbows. Well, I would have <laughs> personally I would have loved to have seen that, but it was going to be impossible in that space. Well, was, uh, she's waited this long to have her. Uh, is it her New York debut? I know it's her. Um, I think so, it's the no. debut, but, okay, it's, but it's, so, it's been a it's really her, really long a long time. time and yeah. it's her, it's her yeah. debut with this gallery. Um, yeah, I mean. I went in and thought, okay, 
Is the meaning of this work that you can only see it from one position and it's hard to light? Is being hard to light um, a new criterion for uh, aesthetic purity in art? Um, I mean, mm. um, it, it, it is, is unphotographability um, uh, a, a hallmark of uh, uh, aesthetic success? I mean... That's um, pretty good. That's a pretty good... Well... Uh, unphotographability, I like that. Not good enough for <laughs> me. But, um, I mean, it's, it's a, it, it is a sign of kudos that it's hard to photograph, but mm. uh, to make, to be, for that to be its sole pictorial achievement would be a little sad. Um, I mean, you say the whole body is experienced. So I, I, body is certainly involved in experience in finding the one position in which you can see it. Well, I mean, it's not just that. There's a certain scale to the work. There's, you know, there's an, in, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, or a scalelessness to the work. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the one hand, they're very large paintings, which it demands a certain kind of experience yes. of, the, of a viewing body. On the other hand, they're you know, like Agnes Martin, you can't really mm. get your bearings in them. You don't know really right. what the scale is exactly. So, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about them. I, I, I oh, sh you know, <coughs> like, like, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're minimal paintings, and minimal paintings usually conspire to find that if you're with them, there's a lot to say about them. But um, the job here is to work out what there is to say about them, mm -hmm. and 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 why, and and how it's moving us, and and whether it's really working, because. To me, it seemed like um, they're sort of almost, I don't think they are, but they could be by, if they were by, if, if the artist was um, 30 years old and British, I'd say they're probably having a joke at the expense of abstract expressionism because mm. they're so uh, reductive and using a willfully perverse medium to, to achieve what they achieve. Franklin, is, am I being harsh? Am I getting... Well, I am. Because. No, you may be on something. I think I was thinking not that so much, but I thought they, uh, if they were small, they would have been terrible. Oh, I thought the opposite. Yeah. And the, um, I, I like what Faye said about it, about uh, it emphasizing the visuality, the bodily, was it the bodily nature of visuality? Did I get that even remotely something right? Like Maybe that. not. Yes, something like that. Yes, the full body experience. Is it, it, it's one of those problems that I'm glad somebody else is trying to solve it's a, it's she's making paintings that are not meant to look a certain way from a certain point which mm. if you've ever made paintings that's pretty much all you're trying to do is to get it to look a certain way from a certain point and uh she has done something really very complex that doesn't follow that rule it, it looks different ways from different places and it changes depending on what light is on it i was noticing the lighting thing too because i was uh getting a little annoyed at my own shadow as it crossed the front of these things, I'm trying to get, like, wait, no, that's my head still there uh, kind of problem. And, uh, and then notice that one of the paintings only had two lights on it, and it looked good from two places. Mm -hmm. And everywhere else it was sort of dead flat, and from some spots in the room the paintings become completely wall-colored, which is really very strange mm -hmm. because they're eight feet high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One yeah. thing I might just add very quickly is yeah. that uh, I love Agnes Martin's work, and there's actually a whole suite of them right now at the Whitney Museum, which is wonderful to see. Um, and I find this experience to be completely different. I don't think these are operating with that, that's lack of a better word, the dignity that a Martin has, where 
um, one really is drawn into a very specific scale, a very specific space, um, and an interpretation of nothingness that feels incredibly hard won in the case of Agnes yeah, Martin. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I agree that they're very, it's a right. very different, yeah. very, very, very different. I, I only wanted it. to, yeah. no, I don't, it, actually, I don't think they're slick. Mm -hmm. I think they're yeah. precisely not slick. I think mm -hmm. that they're, I think that they're, if you look at the way, again, I don't know if you noticed it, Franklin, but the, the way this, the, the paintings are brushed, um, yes, very it's, much it's so. It's not a. It's not a slick. Um, it's not a oh, slick. Not literally slick physically in the slick in the execution, but slick in the conception. Yeah. And and slick in the reduction. I just don't see to, them as. To a singular I don't. Effect. I don't see them as slick. Mm. I see them as a little bit. A little bit clunky, almost actually. Let me put it this way: If she's wrong, Robert Ryman is also wrong. No, no, no. no. <laughs> because this is the whole no. point. Faye says it's a whole bodily experience. My feet were in operation, finding the right position. My eyes were in operation, getting pissed with the lighting. But the rest of my body, everything between the feet and the eyes, was disengaged. So mm -hmm. it's therefore, for, alas for me, my failing, uh, not a bodily experience. Also, they are paintings. They're not bodies of light, like some of her peers might have made. Uh, that or did isn't... she make? Yeah, yeah, she it, made. That's, it's true. Right. That's right. Yes, that's a very, very good point. Yeah. Um, uh, they are. They do reference paintings, and I think there's a bit of a difficult problem there because one certainly can have the experience of looking, and I certainly did spend time to see the play of light, but to approach as a painting, and they certainly invite it with their very large scale um, and their, uh, you know, their flatness, their situation on the wall, uh, and, and their very overt reference. I mean, one of them looked like a Barnett Newman with the color literally sucked right out of it. So they are inviting those kinds of comparisons to painting, which mm. is different yeah. than the bodily experience of, say, you know, uh, some of the light. Ryman or yeah. Martin, yes. Yeah. Let's bring in the audience. And if you could, audience, please, it'd be great if we could uh, just discipline ourselves to have one show and the next. Let's 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 think about course first, as we just have finished with with Mary Course. Any comments on Mary Course? Be very welcome. Hi. Now I admit a certain bias because I'm a psychologist, and I think that uh, a lot of what Course is about. Some of you said something like this: is about teaching the viewer how to see and that seeing is not a disembodied experience. It is not just, you don't see just with your eyes, you see with your whole being and all, all your sensory <coughs> modalities. And I think she is also trying to play with the environment that this exhibition, in some ways, uh, the, uh, the sum is different from its parts that you have to stand back after you've seen the individual paintings, and then what you get is an ambience, which is very unusual when you see an exhibition. Usually you look at painting by painting by painting, but this exhibition has an ambience, and an ambience is a property typically of an environment rather than a single painting. So I think she's playing with a lot of issues that artists typically don't play with, but psychologists and people interested in perception and so on play with. So in a sense, you need you know, a, a different kind of framework or sensibility when you're looking at these works. Mm -hmm. I, 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 they did actually put me in mind, but not in body, of uh, the, the Rothko 
chapel or, or the Rothko room at the Tate, simply because actually as an incidental, not as an intentionality in uh, those Rothkos, the interaction of different um, kinds of application in paint produces those sort of secondary um, frames that are viewable in some positions and not in others. I, I also want to say, I was thinking about this issue of dignity, um, mm. that, that we do have the Doug Wheeler show up at the same time, mm. and those, I don't know how many of you have been able to go see it, and it's, there are these really long lines, but, um, so it's, it's an interesting comparison, because I think in that case, um, you know, I, I mean, it strikes me that what she, she was, I don't know much about her, and I don't want to speak ignorantly, but it seemed to me that something about creating this ambience or this environment without actually using light, you know, a light mm. show of some sort, um, seems to me to have taken a bit of, uh, a certain amount of courage, I think, to have left her, her early neon pieces and, and to do something, or fluorescent, I'm not sure which, to do something like this. Mm -hmm. Further comments on course? Yes. Thank you. Franklin, you made a, <clears throat> you made a comment that she didn't belong with the light and space people. No, I'm, she says that she doesn't belong with the light and space people. That's a comment she makes about her own work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know who she's referring to because she's very much out of the light and space people. She's out of the Irwins and the Tyrells. And she does not seem to have convinced many people with her statement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, another word on course? Okay, I guess you're all bursting to share some thoughts on uh, Joyce Pensato. Uh, yes, you are. Right. Aside from the perhaps opportunistic issue of the material from the, from the studio, and I've seen the video she's done, and, um, I'm interested in your opinion on the paintings themselves, if you know her work from before whether you think there's any movement, any difference. She's working with, in a very narrow range, really, of the mass, um, the Bugs Bunnies, the Mickey Mouses, and so forth. Uh, whether the Joyce Pensato, the gestures, the spontaneity of the early paintings versus the paintings now, which I find a little more studied. And they are. I agree. Yes, you're, you are familiar with the whole Body of work, and you think the yeah. Work I mean, I think the recent, but see, I think it's she's just she's just getting more and more. I I think I, I think that these are yeah. The the earlier ones were scrappier and rougher. These, I mean, those big paintings on that wall were were really extremely um, adroit, you know, in a way that maybe the earlier work. But I I I think that that's a, a really interesting. I like that. So might it even have been at some <laughs> level. Um, a ploy to include the studio uh, structure in order to show yes. that the paintings are not just an extension of unintentional mess, but they have this compelling gestalt. And that would be, yeah, for me, the, a redeeming made, feature of the Absolutely. It really made the, the, the paintings mm -hmm. look, look so, um, so studied. I, mean, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. when you saw mm -hmm. all the junk around, you know, you, you realized that, okay, well, no, it isn't just raw energy and raw and spontaneity and all these things. She's really a very skilled painter. I, I just always have a renewed positive experience with Pensato when I see one of her works and haven't cultivated a Pensato connoisseurship to be able to say with any authority there's this shift or not. But she is an artist for whom I'd like to see 
uh, a retrospective someday, and then we'll, or let at least some curator decide whether a retrospective would help her, uh, help us. Uh, it would be fascinating to see. Um, more comment. There are some more comments on Pensato. There's another hand up front. Up front. If you wait for the mic, it'd be great. Yeah. Yes. I was just curious. I missed um, something. I think, uh, I don't know if it was David and Faye. I'm not sure who was talking, but you were talking about Pensado as a, you know, insisting on, on her formalist impulses. And, and then you, David said something about, you know, made it somewhat generational and mentioned, you know, Pensado emerging out of the 70s. And another artist whose name is, I didn't hear who you were referring to. Uh, Lisa Yuskavich as being oh, a younger artist. Oh, oh, okay. Who also has a very, yes. yeah. uh, you know, we know her imagery, yeah. and yeah. she doesn't delve into the symbolism of her imagery, insisting instead of, uh, on, on the talking issues. about her work in formal terms. Except that, are you saying that, but does Lisa insist in the same way that her, her de facto, rather than, uh, rather than being explicitly formalist, she's a de facto formalist by always bringing the conversation back around to, and back, it to back to it. formal yeah. issues, okay. I would suggest, mm -hmm. I would say. I think that, that the strange thing with this exhibition is because we're seeing all the influence, you know, those, those pictures of those black kids and the blackface figures and everything, which you, you know, the fact that that's that that somehow has made its way into the work to me is very interesting. You know, I would I would like to think more about that. You know, and she doesn't she doesn't see it that way. So that's what was. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, another comment on Pensato. Uh, anybody? Um, okay. Well, let's move to the second half of our program then. A thank you to Molly Flannery and all my assistants at Art Critical for the. Splendid job putting together the PowerPoint uh, for us each time. Um, and Kristen Studioso. Great, thank you. So, Christina, we do pride ourselves here on the review panel on, on, on achieving um, uh, medium democracy. Uh, there's always something to keep the sculptor happy and hopefully something to keep a video or a photographer happy. Um, uh, a little a bit of an ab aberration in that we had seemed to have gathered four painters on this occasion. But I think we've done a pretty good job of a diversity of approach to painting, both within abstraction and uh, representation and uh, kinds of attitudes towards painting being um, you know, a splatter, affect, effect, um, pictorial or non-pictorial. Um, Glenn Goldberg something of a mystery to me. I, I, I love the man and I think I love the work. Uh, but I've always got this sensation, um, am I looking at painting here or am I looking at a picture here? Mm. Is, this, um, is this a really a modernist thing in itself or is this actually almost in a sort of tantric sense mm. um, uh, a picture from uh, into another kind of realm of experience? Is it just because of the psychedelic, slightly funky, slightly um, mystical, kind of big heavy quotes, uh, motifs that those uh, anxieties are thrown up? Or are those, uh, is that a sort of anxiety that you share with his work? Good question. Um, I, 
Uh, I do slightly in that I wasn't sure how I was going to talk about these works that I do know that I love very much. Um, I, I do think they they raise certain questions uh, in the viewer, and I think the easiest way to approach it is to say, well, for me, is to say, well, the first criticism one could make is that I think they're decorative, quote-unquote. I mean, they certainly are dealing with the all of the structures that one uses in decoration, um, but I think they challenge the whole idea of whether that is, in fact, a... Um, a negative trait. I think I think people are starting to think about pictures a little bit differently. Uh, for example, this is a really broad way of speaking about it, but the uh, Islamic wing opening up at the Met, uh, and I'm sure anybody that goes is going to be caught up looking at decoration pattern, um, the intricacies of it. But not it's not just about intricacy. It never is. Uh, you know, rhythm. And I think a huge thing with Glenn Goldberg's work is space. Uh, I think the the surface and the way he works the surface and the scale and the changeability of scale implicit to pattern, fractals, those kinds of things, that things can be very small or very large. And uh, I think he's playing with that pictorial identity in a very interesting way. And so I think the entry point is, are they paintings? Yes. Are they decorative? Yes. Is that a bad thing? No, would be my take. Right. Franklin. I... When in, I'm very surprised by these paintings. I have to say that I went in expecting not to think very much of them. And when I got in front of them, I said, no, there's something here that has to be dealt with. These are working. I'm still trying to figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely touch on all that. I'm, I'm not so worried about whether they're paintings or pictures. I think those are... Um, those are comfortably interchangeable categories, and if they can be experienced one way or the other, to, to a great extent, a lot of art can. Uh, it, they, uh, they're paintings full of a bunch of things that I typically hate. Uh, I don't like fussy things. I don't like, uh, I don't like highly symmetrical images. And uh, I thought the palette was really weird, and... I got in front of them and said, no, they're working anyway. It doesn't matter what I think about all those things. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm still sort of parsing all of that. I think there's... Um, they seem to speak to a kind of pictorial tradition that doesn't look Western to me. So the uh, Christina bringing up the Islamic wing, I think, is quite apt. I was actually thinking of Tibetan paintings when looking at them. Mm -hmm. There's sort of sure. these mandala arrangements. Uh, there's an... One of the paintings has a flower in it that could have been plucked from a Buddha's hand holding that flower. It, it was very much that kind of Tibetan stylization. I, I don't know if that plays into what he's, uh, what he's doing or not. I, I am told that he primarily is thinking about sound and music, and that is how the pattern manifests. And as weird as the color was, this is actually where I think black and white are being used coloristically to great effect. Oh, yeah. uh, the, the, the impulse to take a color and just put black dots on it, as uh, strange of a choice as that was, it was very effective the way he was doing it. They still look fussy to me. And... And I think I have to go look at them again and see if I still care the second time. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Or yes, if they're still working and and or and if they've converted you to the um, redemptive power of fuss and fiddle. Uh, <laughs> Fay, no intended alliteration. Um, fuss, fiddle, Fay. I know, I got it. Yes. Um, <laughs> 
pictures, paintings, fussy, transcendent? Where are we with gold? Well, I, I, I was kind of blown away by how complicated these paintings were, actually, and, and interesting, and interesting. You know, they may not be my absolute favorite thing in the world, but, and I think there is a sort of link to Mary Corse in the kind of meditative aspect mm -hmm. of, the, of the paintings, but one, I mean, there's this kind of bifurcation in these paintings that is really fascinating. You have these, um, you have, and, and I had thought this, but then I read some of the press materials, and it turns out John Yao just wrote about this, that there kind of are two palettes going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's really true. There's the black and white palette, white dots, black dots, gray areas, and then there's this color palette, which is this, are these swaths of very translucent, you know, um, light, light hues, which kind of uh, are used to, to pull you into the painting. Um, so the dots which sit on the surface and this kind of sweep into depth, and also a kind of play on, they're not all symmetrical actually, they're, they, they vary. Um, some of them are symmetrical and some of them are not symmetrical. And the fact that he would play with that, I mean, you, you feel like there's just, there's always like two, two things and they're mm -hmm. pulling um, in various ways so that I guess to me they're yeah I feel like if they're decorative it's at the ser it's at the service of something again a kind of an experiential level of them that's that's really quite fascinating that's a, I think I that's very well put I think something that I noticed about these is that when you get very close to them they look kind of shoddy their their effect is great from five to ten feet back where the, the dots all coalesce and the, the color fills all sort of start to buzz because this uh, this spotty application that's been put all over them. Uh, the surfaces themselves are really quite anemic. And again, uh, I, I would just, I was thinking that I would despair of making these because I, in order to make them, would have to be up close putting these, these sort of dreary surfaces together, but the effect from back is not the same. And uh, yeah, so they, they work from this particular distance I thought was interesting. There, there a true painter speaks, because uh, <laughs> uh, I would despair of having to make any painting. I, I wouldn't look at any painting and think, oh, thank God Rembrandt did that for me. I don't have to do it. Um, don't have to get my hands dirty. But, Christina, you are um, also a practitioner. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you have a feeling, when looking at these paintings, of... Um, involvement with their making. Absolutely, and I think that's, that's also for me a sort of key into their value is that they tend to be, not, they really are neither one thing nor the other and they seem to be striving always towards a sort of bridge and the application is one of the, fast, the easiest ways to think about that. They're not theatrical surfaces. Um, they are not meant to be gobbled up visually like a candy. I mean, they really are, I, I agree with you completely, they are. They have an anemic quality, the color's a little funny, the application is neither mechanical or, you know, done by assistant or computer or gesturally done by the hand. That's interesting. Um, you know, it's like as though someone were doing a kind of messy geometric abstraction and the point mm -hmm. of doing geometric abstraction or part of it can be that platonic space that one enters into where, you know, the square is neither the artist's invention or you know, God's gift, but something in between of some kind of space between the universal and the individual. And I think everything, when I started going through it, I think everything in Glenn Goldberg's work has that sort of balance, and often a very awkward balance, between the theatrical, not theatrical, blah, blah. And I think, uh, also, if you even think of an artist like Fred Tomaselli, what an interesting mm -hmm. visual comparison. He's not after the luscious painting at all. 
No, I mean, I, 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 I dig Tomaselli, but Tomaselli yeah. is a very slick product compared to uh, Goldberg. We've got, what, what energizes the Goldberg surface for me is how you get the occasional misregistration, the occasional mm. dot not quite in the right place. And um, so there I have a sense of uh, a, it, it can't be done by a machine. It has to be done by hand. And therefore, inevitably, leaving aside my joke about someone else doing the work for me, um, it's, still, it's still a job of work, as it were, to look at it, to get into that sense of rhythm and to enjoy that minute um, abrasion of the rhythm that, that is, again, something very uh, tribal or Islamic or uh, other non-Western uh, art world traditions do spring to mind um, in, in relation to the, the, the enjoyment, not just the imagery, but actually the, the rhythm of it. Um, I, I sort of like that, that Franklin, I don't think he was using it in a flattering way, but I, I sort of like that he said that they were shoddy because um, I think also there's something about, you know, there's, there are artists who do put mar one mark down, then another, and then another, and then another, and then another. And, I mean, this is part of this sort of meditative quality of mm -hmm. producing, you know, a kind of systematic um, thing. And, and the fact that they, they are so, when you get up close to them, you're so aware of how, yes. how, how that's being done that, mm -hmm. um, you know, without it being gestural, as I think you said, mm -hmm. um, I, 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 like, I like the fact that they're shoddy. I think it makes them. It's significant. I mean, what do these dots mean? I think it's significant that he's, he's absolutely not, in any perceptual sense, like either Tomaselli or Seurat, no. a pointillist. There's, there's nothing about it supposing to, it's not supposed to coalesce on the retina for us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, therefore, um, uh, what does it mean? What do the dots mean? And, uh, why, why, why is he a dotist? <laughs> I was thinking about this sort of in, in relation to Mary Corse's work as well. And Mary Corse, I'm led to understand, does have, if not explicitly Buddhist, um, underpinning to some of what she's doing, then, then sort of tangentially so. And so there's this meditative aspect of her work as well. And the, I think the problem with, the problem or at least the thing that has to be considered in the course of seeing work that seems bent at that particularly is that our the, the phrase that comes from Buddhism is the stink of Zen. You've, you've done all these Zen things and you've kind of missed what you've done all the Zen things for. Right. And the stink of motorcycles. Yes. Right. And uh, so, and I'm not, I'm not sure I want to say that there's more of that feeling coming through in Mary Course that may just be unavoidable from the fact she's working with such a limited color range and it kind of forces you to see the work in a meditative sort of way and kind of a, a Rothko black painting kind of way or an Al Reinhardt black painting kind of way. Um, the, the Goldberg, I didn't so much get that sense. I think there was... Again, thinking about his inspiration by sound and... Uh, what my experience was being in front of the work and seeing the surface and thinking dot 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 dot. I think there's um, there's something less meditative going on and something that might be akin to that, but it very much is about the the surface and the material itself. Mm -hmm. If, if yes, there's Christina. a psychedelic influence, and then it 
it's not really registering as a psychedelic experience. And that might be what I think if they would have been a bit trashy if there was this overt psychedelic um, UV light poster kind of feeling about them. They don't have that. There, there's something very restrained about them. There's something a bit jazzy about them that defies that sort of meditative thing that the kind of repetition would be evincing otherwise. Right. Christina. Just a quick comment on the dots. I was speaking with a painter friend of mine, Ophir um, Agassi, who studied once with a painter who'd been influenced by Aboriginal art uh, from Australia, which has quite a few dots. And apparently this teacher he studied with would say, okay, now I'm going to do my life dots. And he called these dots life dots. Nothing to do with pointillism, but simply, I mean, it's just a term, but as a sign of vitality. And I think sometimes looking at Goldberg's work, um, you know, we can, there's all sorts of ways to address it, but they are signs of life and vitality. I don't think there's a dark side to them, which, you know, might, maybe could be objectionable, but I think they really do deal with the positive. Yes, he is Aboriginal to Brooklyn. <laughs> so, our last show, um, Ridley Howard, um, I got to say, we've had one or two experiences already this evening of Christina going with enormous trepidation and being won over by uh, Joyce Pensato, um, uh, Franklin thinking he was going to be uh, dismissive of and yet finding himself convinced by, to some uh, extent, um, Glenn Goldberg. Um, my experience with Ridley Howard was one of great uh, confused pleasure. Um, I was actually reminded of an anecdote from the life of Alex Katz. He, he says that when he had one of his first shows in Provincetown, uh, a butch abstract expressionist came up to him and said, gee, I assume from, from the postcard of your work and your name that you were a girl. <laughs> and um, uh, Katz uh, says, oh, I'm pleased my feminine side is coming through, he said. And, and this is part of, I mean, Katz uh, rebelling against the machismo as, as in a funny way, a different way. Joyce Pensato does the machismo inherent in um, the first generation New York school. Um, so... I, I think our sexual politics has hopefully evolved a little since uh, uh, Provincetown gallery openings in the 1950s, and um, uh, I, I don't want to open any um, uh, sexual politics cans of worms, uh, but I, I almost thought, oh, good, here is a male artist who's, who can show that he's as ditzy as Kalimnik and... Uh, uh, Peyton oh, and dear. company, and and that's that's a good thing because I like all those painters, but it, it is ditzy. Hmm. Okay, you want to take? Yeah, I I mean I, I don't even know where to start with that. I, I don't want to get. I, you know I I'm a little on the fence with this exhibition, um, and I really did find myself going back and forth um, with it. I. I actually really love the quality of his painting. I really love the kind of buttery, very thoughtful kind of way that he's constructing these paintings. And there were little touches in them that I was utterly, you know, kind of over the top about, like that one where the two figures are fucking and you mm. see the back, the naked back, and there are just those few freckles on the back. Mm. I just thought things like that were, were really 
just so beautiful, you know. On the other hand, I felt like the installation was so gimmicky. I mean, this was one case where I really did feel like, you know, please, please don't. I don't want to think, you know, I don't want to be told that, you know, there are these morphological resonances in representation and abstraction. You know, I, I know that already. And I felt like he was beating, beating that over, beating that over my head a bit. Um, mm -hmm. But, and I also was a little, it reminded me, I always just want to bring, I, a painter who I really love, Andy Spence, who does, I don't know if you know his work, but for years did these very beautiful abstract paintings where there's a real tension between it being an object in the world and a, and an abstraction, um, and, and he does it really, really well. I mean, his, his paintings are much more um, physically um, robust, I'd say, than these. But I, I you know, again, I, I have to say I'm back and forth on, mm -hmm. the, on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to uh, let my question fizzle out, but um, there are other questions, too. Um, Abstraction, representation, landscape, lots of genres. It's a, it's a one-man group show, Christina. What, what, what do you make of the, the, the genre hopping? Um, I, it's so funny. That actually, I'm going to go back to your first question. Um, you use the, <laughs> use the word ditzy, and I have to say I found the exact opposite impression, that this was a highly intelligent, highly skilled painter. And I just wish, I, it was the show I walked out of saying, gee, I wish that could have been a little different, in that I think there are so many... Um, avenues presented in the show, but I didn't feel they quite ever cohered into a single painting. That was, of course, the point, as you raised. Mm. There were many different things going on, and I think, you know, it's called slows. Clearly, it's meant to reference, you know, perception of imagery through time. Apparently, film was an influence. Um, but the thing, I'm not sure that the idea of film being an influence, which explains the abstract, figurative, da-da-da, that rhythm, I'm not sure that film as an influence in painting should be taken that far because it really, at a certain point, throws the baby out with the bathwater. The point of painting is that it gets all the information in one place at one time, which I'm convinced this painter could do gorgeously. That painting, uh, Trattoria, the yellow mm. one with the cat and the glasses, what a peculiar bunch of information to put in one painting. And it's very interesting, it's very charged. So. That was my feeling about the hopping. I mean, it's interesting to hop, much inter more interesting in this case to put it together. I think maybe ditzy is too harsh a word. What I meant is blah. <laughs> Very well. That's, that's much less harsh. <laughs> the, I had sort of the opposite. You know, I really had the complete experience with these four painters. There was Mary Corris, who I was expecting to like and did. Mm -hmm. uh, Joyce Mansato, who I was expecting to have problems with and did. Uh, Glenn Goldberg, who I was expecting not to like and liked, and then this I was, uh, Ridley Howard was expecting to like a lot and ended up having problems with it that I wasn't expecting. And this, the, the whole circle has been complete for me to see this one person you expected to hate and hated. No, well, that, I guess, I guess Mansato sort of vaguely right. falls into that character. I didn't hate anybody. I mean, these are all very competent painters, and, and they all have their abilities, and they they all feel like they have correctly identified what their main strength is and try to capitalize mm -hmm. it. And I, I think if there's something tying this together, you know, the work in New York takes place at a very high level, so maybe that's not such a surprise. But if there's something that we could say about all of them together, it would be that. Uh, there are stunning passages in some of these Ridley Howards. I was thinking especially of the, um, there's a painting called Track. It was the landscape that has that kind of red sidewalk coming through it. 
the sky in that, as simple as it is, is utterly satisfying. I have a painter friend who says that just every now and then something is paid for. You can just look at a passage and it's complete and it wants for nothing. Uh, you typically, uh, if you're lucky, get one of those sometimes. And that's sort of what I was finding with the Ridley Howards. That, that sky was great. I thought the trees were very dissatisfying. The, the foreground was a bit off and uh, not in a way that was helping it. I thought... Uh, it, it's a hard problem because here's somebody whose skills are so highly polished, and once you evince that level of ability, you start expecting it to manifest kind of all over the painting. And you know, the question is, if you're if you're not going for that sort of stunning realism, and you're doing something that's a little bit more about the shape and the surface, how do you tone it down without it looking like you are holding yourself back or being silly on purpose and I don't think that's been worked out in Ridley Howard's work yet I think there's a lot of potential that it could be over time and this is called slows and maybe this will take another 20 years and that would be an acceptable and noble pursuit and I think um, the, the individual manifestations of his talent are such that one could hope for a very happy later mm. career mm. agreed I had a very strong impression of that as the well. The formal qualities I was really enjoying seemed to me to come out of American precisionism. Uh, yes. I was thinking of Charles Sheeler and mm -hmm. Ralston Crawford in particular. Mm. Um, but another much more recent painter who jumps into my mind, and by the way, uh, Peyton and Kalimnik are still in my mind, but another more recent painter who jumps into my mind is David Diao in the abstractions. Now, uh, the, the purest abstraction... Um, are the oddest paintings in these shows because it seems to me actually the, um, the figure works are more abstract. Uh, the, the figure works, another artist that comes to mind is Amade Ozonfort for that buttery quality you talk about. Mm -hmm. And Ozonfort is way more abstract when he has some representation in him than when he attempts purest abstraction. Um, so I wonder what the abstract paintings are about. Why, why are they here? You know, I don't, I don't even know how to answer this. I feel like I've said everything I can say about the show. Okay. This is one case where I just, I just, um, you know, I can, I don't know. I just, you know, like there were, I was irritated. I was the, the repetition of the girl with the bent mm -hmm. arm. Um, but I like what you say. I mean, it's interesting, the idea that the figurative I, I, I enjoyed the figurative works. I was yeah. a little bored with the abstractions, and I felt like that that I, I liked the quality of the paint. But I, yeah, I just didn't feel like it was coming together. Um, right. But that's okay. I mean, he, yeah, it might it might develop after some time. Sorry, I just that's don't, nothing to apologize for. You have you've said a tremendous amount, and it's very thoughtful to me. I mean, I think you've sort of helped me answer my own question about the abstraction. They are actually. I mean, he paints things in the world he likes. He likes uh, pretty girls. He likes landscapes. And he likes abstract paintings. So he paints them all, and he paints them all in the same language. Do you think he was trying to... I mean, I, I do feel like there's a, there's a conceptual conceit going on here. I mean, it, I don't think it's just a question of what he likes. I think he's mm. trying to make a comment about the interconnectedness of these genres, you know? And, um, and, I, and I just think he's trying a little too hard. Mm. Right. That. Yeah. I actually get the sense that he has no choice. My my feeling about it is that 
he sees abstractly. The, the abstract paintings are very reflective of how he is inclined to put form together, but the figurative work is what he wants to paint. And that is why the, the abstractions are a little bit often funky and the figurative paintings are often funky in a little bit of a different way. There's, that seems to be the strain. That there's a sort of a, a basically abstract sensibility being drawn to these figurative subjects and trying to make paintings that deal with this mismatch of temperament within one person. Very, very interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get your comments, please, on Glenn Goldberg and um, Ridley Howard. And let's, as we did before, start with Ridley Howard. Any comments, thoughts, observations on Ridley Howard? Yes, sir. I, uh, I, I definitely came away just as confused with the, with, with the Ridley Howard show, so I, I agree very much. And what I, what I felt in, in terms of uh, thinking about it afterwards was I, I don't think I've ever been to a, to a show where the paintings were very much at odds with each other, uh, not only at odds, but dismissive uh, of, of each other. I, I, I felt as if the, uh, uh, the abstraction was dismissive of, of figuration as superfluous, and the figuration was mm. dismissive of, of abstraction mm. as, right. as background. Yes. Mm. And the whole thing was, uh, was sort of uh, seen through this, you know, uh, like a glamour, uh, you know, soft porn Vaseline lens that that was you know <laughs> trying to trying to meld them together in, in in some way, and then they did. They they came together convincingly, I think, in particular in that one painting, the the Trattoria painting, which mm. I thought was fantastic. And the mm. only time where they they came together and they they weren't dismissing each other, they seemed not at odds anymore, and mm. and, and suddenly one. But you know, other otherwise they were just you know, completely dismissive, very very, very odd. But I think an incredible conceit for a show, even mm. though it makes you very uncomfortable. Uh, I, I don't know. Right, right. Maybe I can ask you and ask Christina what you saw in that Trattoria painting because I didn't care for it. I thought it was one of the weaker ones in the room. Is this the one with the cat? Yes. Please go ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, sir. Go ahead. Uh, I, I, I was. Uh, I mean, I think it was just convincing in, in terms of the the way that with with, like I said, with all of the other ones, I, I felt that uh, that there was a very much a chasm, you know, a separation between between you have this abstraction, you have this figuration, and then for me that was the Trattoria painting was the, was the focus of the entire show because it was this you know, unassuming thing in which in which both came together kind of comfortably, and suddenly it yeah. just. It sat there, and it was a, like a moment of relief yeah. because there was so much tension and going sort of you know back and forth from one to the other, from one to the other, and then all of a sudden you had this space, you know, in, in a trattoria, no less, where you're sort of you can sit down. And there's kind of like <laughs> a moment of relief, yeah. and you, you sort of yeah. breathe this yeah. sigh, and you're like, ah, oh, okay, you know, finally, you know, I, I guess I get it. Um, so that's, I guess, that's why I liked it more, more because yeah. I was relieved than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, more comments on, on Ridley Howard. Yes, at the back. I have a question about um, what you think of this show relative to the last show that Ridley Howard had, and if you think this is a, an enormous departure or um, if you just want to make any statements about this show compared to that, 
the scale was different, the abstraction was sort of different? Yes. Um, not personally qualified to answer it. Is, yeah. is anybody, no, uh, Franklin? I am almost positive I saw these works and I wasn't able to check on that before. I, I have, okay, this is going to be a silly thing to put on the record, so I apologize for this, but basically I am almost positive that I saw that show and if I am correct about that, I think the, uh, the difference between, it was all figures, right? There was no abstraction in it at all? Now, did you see this show? <laughs> Yes, it did. Okay, so you, you and you saw the the. It was at one. Leo Koenig, and they were large scale um, women in trains. It was women much in trains more and, and in interiors in general, right? I remember a figure yeah. on a bed. Yeah. Okay, so I did see this. I'm very glad of that. Um, I found that show to be a more convincing statement. I think that the, well. See, this is the thing, that if you are going to be an inconsistent artist, should you go ahead and just show the fact that you're an inconsistent artist, or should you edit yourself so that when you go up on the wall, you look very consistent? I think there are arguments to be made in both directions. I thought, the, uh, I thought that, show, that show made a big enough impression on me that when I saw his work again, not knowing whether that work was his or not, it was like, oh, it's him. There is something very strong going on in that work. He's that that I think is is where I feel the talent coming through. His sense of design, his sense of putting paint down. There is a lot of really good to be had in those paintings. Uh, so you know there and I. See, this is why I write and don't speak because okay. I'm just going to get it all smoothed um, out and perfect. But I think there's a. There's two different schools of thought. I think this was a very revealing thing to do in that it was, it was an effort to take a thought process and put it up on the wall knowing that it was going to look inconsistent. Um, I think maybe that speaks of a certain kind of confidence that you get for having put up a very strong, consistent show. To, you know, that demonstrates to the world that you're capable of this, and now that you've done it, you can go put your, your process up and see if that holds together, or maybe it doesn't, and maybe you don't care quite as much because you've know, you know you've been there. Right. Great. So let's have some comments on uh, Glenn Goldberg. No, no questions, just comments, if, if, I, if I could put in that request. <laughs> if you have a question, turn it into a statement. <laughs> Glenn Goldberg, the tantric, the dotty, the picture, the painting, the Islamic, the transcendental. I thought the comment uh, of comparing it to, to jazz was, was very uh, important and uh, descriptive because of the dots. I mean, like in, in jazz, you're bending the note and making it um, different, and that's that's what makes it jazz. And some great drummer once said that by the time you've played that beat twenty times, twenty-four times, it it's not the same as when it first started. And I was thinking about that, looking at these, the the two hundredth dot isn't the same as the tenth one. And there's a cumulative effect that you get. Right, excellent. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. See you next time for Whitney Biennial. Thank you to my panel.